Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm joined, as always, by my colleague Kelly Vlahos as we try to challenge and change the failed U.S. foreign policy status quo. Today, we'll be talking to Stephen Wertheim of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. But first, let's discuss another issue that has been flying under the radar for many months, namely the de jure Israeli annexation of the West Bank that started earlier this year. The coalition government under Benjamin Netanyahu made a significant change in the administration of the Palestinian-occupied territory by transferring responsibility to a civilian administrator instead of keeping it under military control. That represents a final break with the pretense that the Israeli occupation is a temporary one, and it therefore violates international law. Under international law, states are prohibited from annexing territory occupied by force, and this is the third time that Israel has done this since 1967. The Israeli government's latest move has faced some strong criticism both in Israel and the U.S., but the U.S. government has so far ignored it. In the past, the U.S. has tacitly or openly endorsed Israeli annexation moves, and it seems that it is going along with this one as well. Two recent articles have shown the spotlight on the latest annexation. One of them was written by Michael Sfard and appeared in Foreign Policy last week, and the other was written by Dahlia Scheindlin and Yael Berda for Foreign Affairs this week. Both articles lay out how the annexation happened and how it is the conclusion of a long process of establishing a one-state reality. As they explained, the government made the important change of creating a new minister within the Ministry of Defense with the responsibility for governing the West Bank. Scheinland and Verda unpacked what that means. In February 2023, Israel's ultra-nationalist coalition government agreed on what the new minister would do, assume certain civil authorities over life in the West Bank, which had previously been the exclusive purview of the Israel Defense Forces. This administrative change equates to declaring Israeli sovereignty over the West Bank a violation of the UN Charter's prohibition against territorial conquest. This change drives another nail into the coffin of any de decent peace settlement with the Palestinians and suggests that the current apartheid system will only become more entrenched. This is a result of decades of settlement, expansion, and increasing de facto control over Palestinian territory, and all of it has been enabled by unstinting U.S. backing for the Israeli government. So what do you think, Kelly? Will Israeli annexation of the West Bank begin to erode support for the U.S.-Israel relationship? And how damaging to U.S. credibility around the world is it? for our government to look the other way when Israel illegally annexes territory while condemning Russia for doing the same thing. I agree with you on that last point. I mean, it sounds absolutely hypocritical to not take a strong stand on this, but it's obvious why we don't. I mean, this is a special situation. We have the quote-unquote special relationship. And as a result, uh, the mainstream media won't touch this with a 10-foot pole. Now, I, I know Foreign Affairs had that wonderful piece and it's a breakdown of what the issues are. But until this is covered in the mainstream press like Washington Post, New York Times, and all the others, and the wire services in a way that conveys truthfully what's happening there, I'm afraid that um, the American people um, aren't going to be as interested and they're not going to see the clear hypocrisy the way that, that you and I do. Um, I, you know, I do feel that Democrats, particularly in Washington, have gotten very agitated about the new right-wing government in Israel uh, to the point where they are suggesting, and I don't know how successful they will be, that we stop giving unconditional aid. We give about $3 billion in aid, most of it military aid, to Israel every year. And they're talking about cutting that off if they continue to go down an illiberal path. These Democrats are mostly interested, and, and there's no reason not to be, in some of the new policies that have been pursued by the Netanyahu government, particularly on the courts and, you know, increasingly restrictive moves towards the Palestinians. But unfortunately, I don't know if it, it 
you know, without buy-in from everybody in Congress, without buy-in by the Biden administration itself, in terms of holding Netanyahu and the government to task, not just for those policies, but what we're seeing, it, as you say, a de jure annexation of West Bank, I'm just not, I'm just not sure it's going to hurt the U.S.-Israel relations, uh, relation, relationship, rather. And it, it really, I don't know, it just makes me sad that we have gone increasingly into this direction via uh, our administration, administrations in which there seems to be no serious criticism of the illegal settlements there. So during the Obama administration, at least he would make uh, the attempt or the appearance of being opposed to the illegal settlements and would call out uh, the government, uh, Netanyahu government at the time and say, hey, you guys said you weren't going to build any more settlements. And then they would say, oh, no, we're clawing these back and blah, blah, blah. And now we got into a point where there are 480,000 Jewish settlers in the West Bank. And we have an administration that barely says a word about that. And so it's all led to this moment. Now they're going to codify this situation, uh, as you said, and put in a, um, and can you explain it to me? Because I, I don't want to be inaccurate, but it, it sounds like they're, they're, they're extending civilian control, uh, over the settlers in West Bank, which is illegal under international law, because right now it's supposed to be like a military imposed uh, administration under temporary quote unquote arrangements by extending the civilian the, the Israeli government into the West Bank, it is abridging the sovereignty under international law. Right. So they've appointed or uh, they they brought in this it's all the, the person who's been put in charge of this is also the Minister of Finance, uh, uh Bezalel Smotrich, uh, who's himself uh, quite an ultranationalist. Uh, and and his uh, one of his conditions for his party being part of the coalition was to uh, have this provision where uh, where there is uh, civilian administration of uh, of the West Bank uh, and effectively extending Israeli sovereignty over uh, the West Bank, uh, which of course applies not only to the Israeli settlers but also to the Palestinians living there, and so it's it's a way for a uh, very uh, pro-settler government to exercise even more intrusive control uh, with, with that agenda in mind uh, over the people uh, living in Palestinian territory, and so it's uh, it's hugely um, damaging, uh, obviously to the to the plight of Palestinians, uh, but it's also uh, I think very bad ultimately uh, for Israel because it's going to be driving them ever more in, into this system that's already recognized uh, by many human rights groups and, and uh, analysts as an apartheid system. And this is simply uh, cementing that and, and making it uh, a more permanent uh, state of affairs. So it's, uh, I think it's, it's and, and that's, I think, what's ultimately going to drive a wedge between the U.S. and Israel over time, because attitudes are beginning to change in the U.S., especially among Democratic voters, uh, regarding sympathies towards Isra Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, 
a lot of Democratic voters are now more sympathetic to the Palestinians than they are to Israelis. Um, that doesn't necessarily automatically translate into support for uh, more, uh, more accountability for Israel or, or pulling back U.S. aid yet. But I think it shows that there is movement in that direction over time. And, and as we have uh, new generations of leadership coming in to, uh, into the Congress and into uh, public life, uh, we're going to see, I think, a, a much more critical and conditional kind of relationship emerge. Um, and, and I think that's healthy. That's it, what should have been happening all along, uh, because the, the U.S. shouldn't ever be providing such uh, uncritical backing to any state, uh, no matter what it is. Uh, and, and we can see the results of that kind of uncritical backing here, uh, where it's, it's a, essentially underwritten a very uh, unjust and oppressive system, uh, all the while sort of patting ourselves on the back and, and pretending that we're supporting some kind of peace process. Uh, if, if there's one thing that this late, latest move by the Israeli government should do, it, it should once and for all end all illusions about a two-state solution or anything like that. Uh, obviously, there's going to be a second state when there's a one-state reality uh, being enforced every day. And so, at least if we can be rid of those illusions, then maybe we can actually face the problem as it exists. But where do we go from there? I mean, uh, I mean, you and I are old enough to remember when people did talk about a two-state solution in all seriousness and did talk about the peace process as though there it was an active process and that there were active uh, efforts in Washington to be a fair broker in that process. And slowly but surely, it became a wink and a nod because no one actually saw Washington as a fair broker. And Trump actually blew all that out of the water. I mean, he came in and, and basically said, my thumb is on the scale of Israel, and that's how it should be. What bothers me is that we have a new administration. Trump is gone, but yet the Biden administration has not clawed back any of the measures that Trump made to signal that thumb on the scale, including, you know, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital and the Golan Heights as part of Israel. And instead, they've kind of tiptoed around uh, the new Netanyahu government, uh, have said nothing about new settlements, have been fairly lukewarm on the violence there, um, have, have played this sort of both siderisms when it comes to the, the violence that is perpetuated against Palestinians, um, have, have barely said a word about the killing of the Al Jazeera uh, journalist uh, who was shot in the head by Israeli soldier, soldiers. So, I mean, most of my disappointment is not with Trump at this point. It's with the Biden administration. The Democrats have a legacy of, 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 of at least attempting, you know, and you can, you can say all you want about the Oslo Agreement and President Clinton, but there was some effort to maintain um, some role in a peace process there. And now it's a given that it, it, a, it doesn't exist anymore, and B, the two-state solution is dead. So what does the Biden administration do from here? And unfortunately, we're you know moving towards a 2024 election. I haven't seen 
The Biden administration distinguished itself on this issue. And you have Republicans who are traveling to Israel every day, practically, to kiss the ring of the Netanyahu government and say how much of a friend of Israel they're going to be, including uh, 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 Ron DeSantis. So I just don't I don't see any progress. And, you know, who's who's the biggest loser here? The Palestinian people. Oh, and by the way, Blinken and uh, National Security, you know, Secretary of State Blinken, National Security Advisor uh, Jake, Jake Sullivan have both talked about pushing, you know, this Saudi Israel normalization that, again, would leave the Palestinians at the side of the road. And so it's it's unfortunate that... Um, you know, uh, this this seems to be increasingly uh, dire uh, for any efforts for peace there in the region. Uh, yeah, and I, I'm afraid that's true. And well, what we can see with the the Biden administration's embrace of of Trump's normalization uh, accords is that uh, they're they're very much that these accords are very much uh, not peace agreements. They they are uh, antithetical to to real lasting peace. Uh, because they're being made at the expense of the Palestinians, uh, where the Israelis are not expected to give up anything, and the the Arab states that are making these deals with them are not expected to give up anything either. Uh, the U.S. is supposed to provide bribes of one kind or another to the Arab states to get them to agree to normalization uh, as a way of of facilitating the process. And in the case of the, of the Saudis, uh, the Saudi demands are very high; they're they're exorbitant; they're they're ridiculous, in fact. They want security guarantees from the United States. They want our assistance in building their own civilian nuclear program. Um, and, and these demands are simply unacceptable. They're, they're certainly not in the American interest. And uh, the fact that the Biden administration seems to be kind of obsessed with getting the Saudis on board as one of these countries normalizing with Israel, I guess because they think it will make them look better than Trump in the, in the sweepstakes, uh, for you know, who who can bribe the most client states or something? I don't know. Uh, it's it's very that is very disconcerting. It's it's very uh, discouraging because, uh, as you say, uh, Biden has basically kept all of the things that Trump did in this area, uh, even when whose actions were widely condemned. His his recognition of Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara, for instance, what well, was widely condemned. You had people across the spectrum. Even John Bolton came out against it of all of all things. It was, it was an extremely unpopular move. It, it went against decades of U.S. policy, but essentially because it was a gift to Israel, it has been allowed to stand. And that's, I think that's that's the real problem that we're facing, is that there there's the, the normal standards that we would apply in these situations are suspended when we talk about Israel, and and that is what has helped to create problems that we're looking at. Uh, if we would simply apply the same standards to Israel that we apply to every other state, uh, I think we would have avoided a lot of these problems uh, a long time ago. Our guest today is Stephen Wertheim. He's a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He is a historian of U.S. foreign policy and an analyst of contemporary problems in American grand strategy. He is the author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy, and he was one of the co-founders of the Quincy Institute. He also recently co-wrote an article in Foreign Affairs with Emma Ashford and Josh Schifferson, 
called Does America Still Need Europe? About the U.S. role in Europe, the need for Europe to do more for its own security, and the advantages of burden sharing. Welcome to the show. Pleased to be back with you. Yeah, it's uh, always great to talk to you, and uh, I, I really, really enjoyed the article. The, the three of you did a, a great job uh, working through all of the, the issues with this, and, and you were responding to an earlier article by Michael Mazar, in which he argued that the U.S. still needs Europe and also needs to maintain its current level of commitment and military presence. Uh, you challenge some of those assumptions that propose that now is the best time for shifting the burden of European security to European allies. Uh, what are the advantages of shifting this burden to our allies, and why is this the right time to do it? Or to start to do it? Well, I think the course that we are on right now is one that should trouble us and is unsustainable. Uh, right now, the United States is attempting to be the leading power in deterring both a rising China and an aggrieved Russia uh, indefinitely and simultaneously. This is something that not just people who favor strategic uh, who favor strategic restraint, like me and my co-authors uh, Emma Ashford and Josh Shefferson, are bothered by, but also uh, people who are concerned about uh, the rise of of China and fear that uh, China would be able to uh, shape uh, the order in Asia uh, to its liking unless the United States does more there. Now we have some differences with those people. Uh, but I think there's a widely shared, you know, realization that uh, it will really overstretch the United States uh, to uh, try to uh, be the leading agent without significant, significant help from its allies and partners uh, in achieving the goals that it set out for itself, especially now that China is rising. So that is one major reason why it would make sense if it can be done in a reasonable and responsible way uh, to shift the burden uh, of European security largely onto Europeans themselves. Uh, and then I think there's a second concern uh, that, um, you know, a more capable Europe in the eyes of critics of our position uh, would somehow, you know, completely detached from the United States uh, and, uh, you know, leave the United States in an extremely vulnerable position. And we just think that that's unwarranted pessimism. So on the one hand, uh, there is, I think, in, in Washington today, excessive optimism about the trajectory the United States is on, trying to take on Russia and China simultaneously, and unwarranted pessimism about uh, the likely trajectory of a more capable Europe. Sure. And, and on that theme of, of overstretching and needing allies to do more, um, uh, the, the, the point you were making about doing this responsibly, I thought was, was very important because uh, you don't want to just yank the rug out from under them and, and do it all at once before they're ready. Uh, but obviously with, with allies as wealthy and, prosperous as those in Europe. Uh, they, they certainly have the means to do more for their own defense. And, and what we've seen with the war in Ukraine is it's also revealed that Russia is relatively much weaker than we had supposed. And so the, the threat to Europe, conventional threat to Europe uh, from Russia is less than what everyone thought it was. And as the war drags on, it will continue to lessen as they're consumed with their own war. And so uh, that, that's what really makes this the, the, the right time to, to begin that process 
uh, in order to do it responsibly, right? That if if we were to wait until there was a an urgent crisis where we had to pull out suddenly, uh, that would be much worse than doing it gradually now. Well, th- th- that's what I took you uh, three to be saying. Yeah, it's, that's really important. Uh, thinking about the, the the time horizons here um, and whether time is on our side, if we wait to effectuate a transition or not, that's that's just crucial. So I've thought for a while that if you just look at some of the basic numbers on paper, um, Europe ought to be able to defend itself against Russia prior to the war, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine launched in February of 2022. Uh, The European Union had a GDP more than nine times that of Russia's. Okay, this is from 2021. That gap has surely widened uh, given the toll that the war has taken on on Russia, uh, including because of the Western sanctions. Uh, the EU members even spent multiples on their militaries of what of what Russia did. Um, and the population gap is is also very significant. So the latent military capabilities of Europe have always been there. Now, of course, Europe is balkanized into different countries. Russia is one country. So you can discount some of the advantages Europe has on that basis, although we've also seen because of the war in Ukraine, uh, significant problems and inefficiencies in, in Russia's own own system. So it would just be um, extraordinary if somehow this vast advantage uh, in terms of economic resources uh, left Europe somehow unable to effectively deter uh, and defend against Russia. Um, so that's a sort of basic fact. But now we add into this um, the specifics of our situation now. Uh, now the Russian military is bogged down in Ukraine. Uh, it has proved to be more ineffective than uh, almost every observer expected prior to February 2022. Uh, I think you know we can debate exactly when Russia's military capabilities might be restored to their pre-invasion level. Uh, but it's going to be some years to come. And I also think that the war in Ukraine itself is likely to go on for for several years, unfortunately. So what would be a better opportunity for the United States? It can continue to support Ukraine in its fight. But at the same time, for the United States and Europe to work out a gradual, you know, eight or 10 year transition plan whereby Europe will become capable of defending itself, uh, especially in uh, areas close to Russia's borders that could be subject to an attack in the future, uh, there seems to be a really unique opportunity. So it's hard for me to imagine better circumstances to effectuate, to at least start effectuating this kind of transition, because the problem with this transition is, of course, that especially in the early years, um, as the United States is pulling back and Europeans are trying to replace previous U.S. capabilities, there's some risk that Europe won't do so, um, whether because they actually want to keep the United States in uh, or because they simply have problems coordinating and 
and agreeing on what their common interests are. That is the basic problem. And that problem is now mitigated because uh, Russian forces are uh, so so focused on Ukraine and and so weakened uh, by, by the same token. Thank you, Stephen, for coming on the show. Um, I agree there is a unique opportunity here, but it seems like, it, you know, the primary <clears throat> vehicle for security in Europe right now in this war is NATO. And can you tell us, I mean, are there debates going on within NATO about the role of, of Europe and whether or not uh, it could move towards some, you know, security autonomy or is nato actually preventing this transformation from happening because we see all the time articles in new york times washington post about the emboldened nato the idea that nato is going to have to increase its troop levels it's going to have to increase its assets in these in the member countries we've added two more countries in none of those stories do we hear that the United States role is going to be diminished. But is there a debate within the NATO community um, in terms of whether or not Europe, the European members can start shifting uh, the leadership away from a, an American centric one and more towards a European one? Or is NATO actually coming between um, this idea of more autonomy and less autonomy. There is, I think, an increasing debate in Europe along the lines that that you suggested. It really began perhaps late in the Obama administration, when, when we all forget the Obama administration, particularly Defense Secretary Robert Gates, uh, called on Europeans to uh, to step up, to do more burden sharing with the United States, that turned into uh, Trump's uh, louder demands, although not necessarily more effective, but I would say a, a louder version of the same, uh, which was, of course, intensified by uh, the um, the lack of trust that Europeans had in in uh, the Trump administration generally. So that gave rise to very clear uh, vocal calls from French President Emmanuel Macron, for example, for uh, European strategic autonomy. Now, he focused on uh, trying to achieve that through the EU that is outside of NATO. Um, didn't get that far, although EU defense procurement schemes have have come some some ways. Uh, and that, you know, that brings us to the present where, you know, two things are colliding. First of all, Europeans are seeing that they remain dependent on the United States uh, and they welcome that don't, you know, by and large. Um, but they are confronted with the fact that, first of all, even through the war in Ukraine, Washington has clearly prioritized security in Asia over security in Europe. Uh, and so that has been, you know, the fact that the Biden administration, a clearly transatlanticist administration has nevertheless continued to insist that uh, that security in Asia should take priority uh, and has also ramped up tensions with Beijing. Uh, you know, this has gone noticed uh, in European capitals. And then, of course, there's the looming 
uh, question of American politics and the presidential election coming in in 2014. So I was I was in Berlin a few months ago, and uh, there were lots of questions about where the Republicans uh, were coming down in the war in Ukraine. Uh, and it's clear uh, that uh, the candidates who have uh, the most political traction or really any political traction in the Republican primary are all sounding more cautious notes on uh, the volume and longevity of, of U.S. support for Ukraine and and for European defense more generally, whereas they are, you know, even more so than the Biden administration prioritizing uh, security in in Asia. So I think, you know, there is a real I, frankly, I was a little bit surprised, uh, even in Berlin, uh, which, you know, is a, a place uh, not known for its um uh, willingness to to buck the United States, uh, there was a recognition that these are real risks, and uh, that it may Europe may be forced, whether it wants to or not, um, to uh, separate itself uh, from the United States at least when it comes to defense to a to a large degree. That could happen because of a, an unexpected war in Asia. That could happen because. Uh, you know, a Republican is elected in the next election or the election after that. Uh, that also is is committed to effectuating uh, a transition that perhaps is not, you know, as as gradual and responsible as as I would like. I want to just shift a bit because I when I think of the United Nations and the history of the United Nations, I think of your book, <laughs> Tomorrow the World, and um, you and, and, and for all listeners who have not picked up this book, please, I, I, I wholly recommend it because a lot of the the history of the last century and post-World War II period uh, can speak to a lot of the pathologies that we're seeing in reaction to the Russian invasion and the war in Ukraine today. And we have what was being called the first great land war in Europe since World War II. How, what role does the United Nations play, if anything at all, uh, in, in, in responding to that war? I, or are you looking at this, Stephen, after doing all this research for a book and saying, this proves, what's happening today proves how ineffectual the United Nation has become since its inception after World War II? I, I go more with the uh, with the latter there. Uh, thanks for the kind words about the book. Uh, yeah, it's funny. I mean, before uh, well, before the war in Ukraine, I, I wrote this book, and uh, when I get to the end of the book and the end of World War II, um, I try to show that even though the United States um, supported both the creation of the United Nations and a new global political military role for the United States in the world, those were not equal priorities. Uh, and to a very large extent, U.S. officials valued the United Nations as a vehicle uh, to help the United States uh, project power uh, in the post-war world and did not see the United Nations as something that would impose meaningful and effective 
constraints upon the United States' ability uh, to project power. In other words, not much of a quote-unquote rules-based international order. So to that degree, it's, it's not all that surprising that, you know, in our own moment, uh, the UN is left hamstrung and unable to um, stand up to the aggression of one of its permanent members, Russia, just as it was hamstrung, bypassed, and unable to stand up to the aggression of one of its members, the United States, when the United States invaded Iraq, for example, in in 2003. Uh, and so, so, you know, the lessons of World War II um, today are translating into, you know, a U.S. effort to uh, to show that it's indispensable to European security uh, to, you know, as Biden says, do whatever it takes as long as it takes to to aid Ukraine. Now, I agree that Ukraine deserves deserves support, but there's also a kind of larger context for what we're seeing, which is the United States um, actively uh, wishing to take on a, a, a global political military role. Uh, and while that sometimes makes sense in certain episodes like this one uh, and often does not make sense in, in other episodes, there's a structural problem and not a willingness, uh, at least a sufficient willingness in Washington to address that structural problem and take what I really think would be a win-win. We've been talking about European security, you know, Europeans able to basically do just what the United States would, would want to happen, but without the United States uh, nearly paying the same amount of costs and taking on the same amount of risk. Uh, I think that's that's good for the United States and something that Washington should should positively seek. Uh, definitely. I, I, I hope that uh, one of these days it will. We're, we're almost out of time, but I did have one more question coming back to the article. Uh, and talking about lots of, of the, the current status quo in Europe that you identify uh, with your co-authors, is the effect that U.S. dominance in Europe has on the thinking of American, American policymakers. Uh, you say acting as Europe's protector fuels U.S. hubris and allows Washington to discount the often valuable advice of its friends, uh, the, the Iraq war debate being an obvious example of that. Uh, I think that suggests if European allies shouldered more of the security burden for themselves, the U.S. might then be more likely to take them seriously when they warn against reckless U.S. actions elsewhere. Uh, do you think that having more capable allies in Europe could act as a break on U.S. interventionism in other places? I think it could. You mentioned the example of Iraq in 2003. Uh, the Europeans were correct that that was not a good idea. Uh, we can also add to that uh, the Bucharest summit of NATO in 2008. Uh, George W. Bush came in to extend uh, a membership action plan, uh, which is the device uh, that would allow uh, Ukraine and Georgia to join NATO. Uh, and I would say, thankfully, he encountered opposition uh, by Germany, France, Italy, and most uh, most of America's European allies. In the end, they brokered a very unsatisfying compromise uh, by which NATO declared that Ukraine and Georgia will become members, but gave them no path to do so. This is uh, just provocative to Russia without providing security to uh, to Ukraine or Georgia. Nevertheless, 
Um, I think, you know, in these cases, um, a stronger European hand uh, would have actually been better for U.S. interests. Now, there are other cases where that might not be the case. The Europeans were uh, more out front with respect to the Libya intervention uh, than the Obama administration was at the time. At least some of those states were like 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 France. So, you know, it might not uh, it might not be foolproof, but uh, I think that having a uh, a more capable Europe uh, that could, you know, actually have more weight with the United States uh, could could well, you know, make the United States uh, aware that uh, it can't just lay down uh, its own preferences all the time and it'll have to listen. Uh, I think we all know from our, from our own lives sometimes uh, when people have no uh, uh, reason to, to listen to you, uh, they, they often, um, they often don't pay attention. Uh, and when it's your boss telling you, Hey, or an equal, a colleague saying, look, I've got these concerns, you know, you have a little bit extra incentive to, to, to take them seriously. And, this is, you know, perhaps especially relevant with respect to the U.S.-China competition. Um, I think Europeans have something to offer uh, to say, wait a minute, are we sure that uh, the uh, tensions over Taiwan are absolutely entirely coming from Beijing's side? Or is there a, a better way for the United States uh, to to manage this problem, I think the United States has contributed, um, you know, at least to, to part of this problem by by loosening uh, its its one China policy. Not blaming the United States entirely or or even mainly necessarily, but uh, I think you know Europeans have uh, have important uh, insights to offer, and so uh, uh, a little bit more of an autonomous Europe there too uh, could lead the United States to to play a more uh, restrained and, and humble role in the world, which is something that a great many people in Washington have recognized is is desirable uh, after after uh, the nine eleven wars. Very good. Well, I think we'll have to leave it there. Uh, thank you, uh, Stephen Wertheim, for coming on again. Uh, we appreciate it, and uh, everyone, be sure to check out the article in Foreign Affairs. Uh, Does America still need Europe? Uh, written uh, along with uh, Anna Ashford and Josh Shepherdson. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack, at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.